episode 54, 55, something like that. Chapter 17, anyway, part three of Unsustainable from our Beginning of Infinity series. Today's will be short and sweet. There will, of course, be a part four in order to get through Unsustainable, being such an important central chapter, a kind of crescendo of a sort, this chapter, bringing together so much of what we've talked about in previous chapters, as I've said before in the other parts. I'm going to dive straight in today, into the reading, where David says, In early prehistory, populations were tiny, knowledge was parochial, and history-making ideas were millennia apart. In those days, a meme spread only when one person observed another enacting it nearby, and, because of the staticity of cultures, rarely even then. So at that time, human behaviour resembled that of other animals, and much of what happened was indeed explained by biogeography. But developments such as abstract language, explanation, wealth above the level of subsistence, and long-range trade all had the potential to erode parochialism and hence give causal power to ideas. By the time history began to be recorded, it had long since become the history of ideas, far more than anything else, though, unfortunately, the ideas were still mainly of the self-disabling, anti-rational variety. As for subsequent history, it would take considerable dedication to insist that biogeographical explanations account for the broad sweep of events. Why, for instance, did the societies in North America and Western Europe, rather than Asia and Eastern Europe, win the Cold War? Analysing climate minerals, flora, fauna and diseases can teach us nothing about that. The explanation is that the Soviet system lost because its ideology wasn't true, and all the biogeography in the world cannot explain what was false about it. Coincidentally, one of the things that was most false about the Soviet ideology was the very idea that there is an ultimate explanation of history in mechanical non-human terms as proposed by Marx, Engels and Diamond. Quite generally, mechanical reinterpretations of human affairs not only lack explanatory power, they are morally wrong as well. For in effect, they deny the humanity of the participants, casting them and their ideas merely as side effects of the landscape. Diamond says that his main reason for writing guns, germs and steel was that unless people are convinced that the relative success of Europeans was caused by biogeography, they will forever be tempted by racist explanations. Well, not readers of this book, I trust. Presumably, Diamond can look at ancient Athens, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, all of them, the quintessence of causation through the power of abstract ideas, and see no way of attributing those events to ideas and to people. He just takes it for granted that the only alternative to one reductionist, dehumanising reinterpretation of events is another. Pausing there, just my reflection. It seems to be the pervasive worldview of science-minded intellectuals who otherwise have divested themselves of supernatural explanations for events to fall quickly down a slippery slope of complete literal physicalism. Or in less fancy language, they think that unless you explain things purely in terms of physical forces and physical stuff out there, that then the only alternative is a supernatural magical explanation. And as we've tried to emphasize here, and David's theme running throughout the book very much is, knowledge, being an abstract thing, has 
absolutely central causal power and effects within human civilization, within the world as we find it now. It's gradually becoming more and more a potent force of nature to some extent. Often I say the words, uh, it's literally a force of nature. Knowledge creation is literally a force of nature. Of course, that's quite wrong. I don't mean literally a force of nature in the same way that physicists regard forces of nature to, forces of nature to be. But what I do mean is that increasingly the effects of knowledge creation will have as dramatic effects out there in physical space as does gravity, as does the strong nuclear force, for example. That in order to explain what we're going to see in the future and events that are going to happen in the future, we are going to have to explain the causes in terms of people's abstract ideas, the explanations that they create and the choices that they make. And I don't try to sideline choice and where choices originate. They originate in the minds of people. This has come up recently and and near to simultaneously with the release of this particular podcast is or are my remarks in response to Sam Harris. Sam Harris has a wonderfully tight, neat defense of the illusion of free will, as he calls it, the argument for pure determinism in the universe, and particularly determinism as applied to the brains of people, and therefore to the suggestion that, therefore, people are nothing particularly different to the rest of physical reality, including other animals, and including any other natural process that might happen out there, like a hurricane, let's say. In all cases, the hurricane... um, what the grizzly bear is doing, and what the human being is doing when they're engaged in knowledge creation are similar in a fundamental way on this view. That similarity comes down to the fact that they are all the unfolding, the unworking of physical laws acting upon matter and energy. And as I like to say, this is a true statement. It's a vacuously true statement. It isn't really an explanation as much as it is a general purpose description of anything that happens anywhere at any time and anything that always has happened and always will happen. It's a necessary truth, but it doesn't explain what is going on. And if we want to explain what people are up to, what they're doing, referring to physical laws or even to the goings-on within the brain in terms of the firing of neurons is the wrong level of analysis. What we need to refer to is the abstract creation of knowledge that then goes on to have physical effects in the world. These are the true explanations of why, for example, the Enlightenment happened in one place and not another, had the effects that it did and not some other effects. It's the reason why, as David will go on to say, we can say there is a stark difference between an open-ended stream of knowledge creation that occurs in dynamic societies and the explanation as to why it is that other societies endured stasis and finally went extinct. People's choices, choices to create knowledge or not, really are the explanation as to why certain civilizations exist, 
certain technologies exist and certain ways in which people either are able to come together and collaborate and work towards a better future or not happens to be. This is all to do with ideas, not the motion of particles in the void under deterministic physical laws. Those deterministic physical laws acting on matter, moving through a void, is just always necessarily the case as a description of what is happening anywhere cosmologically in the universe. But let's go back to what David says about this. Quote, he writes, In reality, the difference between Sparta and Athens or between Savonarola and Lorenzo de Medici had nothing to do with their genes, nor did the difference between the Easter Islanders and the Imperial British. They were all people, universal explainers and constructors, but their ideas were different. Nor did landscape cause the Enlightenment. It would be much truer to say that the landscape we live in is the product of ideas. The primeval landscape, though packed with evidence and therefore opportunity, contained not a single idea. It is knowledge alone that converts landscapes into resources, and humans alone who are the authors of explanatory knowledge, and hence of the uniquely human behaviour called history. Physical resources, such as plants, animals and minerals, afford opportunities, which may inspire new ideas, but they can neither create ideas nor cause people to have particular ideas. They also cause problems, but they do not prevent people from finding ways to solve those problems. Some overwhelming natural event like a volcanic eruption might have wiped out an ancient civilization, regardless of what the victims were thinking. But that sort of thing is exceptional. Usually, if there are human beings left alive to think, there are ways of thinking that can improve their situation and then improve it further. Unfortunately, as I have explained, there are also ways of thinking that can prevent all improvement. Thus, since the beginning of civilization and before, both the principal opportunities for progress and the principal obstacles to progress have consisted of ideas alone. These are the determinants of the broad sweep of history. The primeval distribution of horses or llamas or flint or uranium can only affect the details, and then only after some human being has had an idea for how to use those things. The effects of ideas and decisions almost entirely determine which biographical features have a bearing on the next chapter of human history and what the effect will be. Marx, Engels and Diamond have it the wrong way around. Pause there, just my reflection on this. Notice also that dismissing the centrality of human creativity, of the human being as being a causal agent in the unfolding of historical events and of the landscape we find ourselves in now, to sideline that, ignore it, dismiss it, or just be completely unaware of it, leads, in my view, inexorably to a kind of pessimistic worldview where people are impotent in their capacity to actually change the course of history and to do something good. And yet we see a strong theme running through the beginning of infinity is that things are getting better all the time. Uh, it's not inexorable, okay, I've sometimes said that erroneously as well. It's not like it necessarily must get better, but it is getting better. And there's explanations for that because people are improving their ideas, in particular, their moral knowledge. They're improving that. And so we are 
quickly finding ways to lift everyone out of poverty. We are quickly finding ways of curing disease. We are quickly finding ways to ensure that the environment we live in is less polluted, uh, more comfortable, where there's less suffering. So the story of human history is not merely a story of one where it is human ideas which have shaped the course of history, but that those ideas are causing people to improve the universe in which they find themselves. At the moment, only locally, but eventually, cosmically. Now, if you ignore all that, and if you think that humans are kind of just uh, waves being washed upon the shore, they're just leaves being blown by the wind, they're just another feature of the environment, and especially if you think that people are a dangerous feature of the environment, then you will end up having ideas about how to control people, about how to try and mitigate the dangers of people. And that usually comes through social control. So it's absolutely no accident that, that people like Marx and Engels come up with social theories of history which lead directly to a political vision about how society should be arranged that are just engines of human suffering. But this is a pervasive, popular opinion even today. No matter how many times these political ideologies are refuted by the simple fact that they've been tried in history and they've led to starvation and suffering and misery for the places in which they've actually been tried, to the extent that they've been tried, Despite that, they continue to survive. Just today, coincidentally, the philosopher Ray Scott Percival, uh, if you don't know who I'm talking about here, look up Ray Scott Percival. Uh, he's written for Quillette magazine and Medium magazine. Uh, he's a great uh, espouser of Popperian ideas. But he observed uh, in an article I read today that the ideologies, bad ideologies, tend to persist because all you need is, even if people are being converted out of those bad ideas all the time, you know, it seems to be kind of a one-way street in a sense that people come out of socialism or out of Marxism and into capitalism. But those ideologies don't die because the rate at which people are converted out and persuaded of better ideas, about ideas about freedom and optimism and how people don't need to be socially controlled in the way that Marx kind of thinks. Nonetheless, young people tend to be born into thinking these are good ideas. They're raised on mother's knee quite often. They're raised by a school system. They're raised by an education system in order to endorse these terrible ideas. And so the the, the traditions within education are very much about inculcating, indoctrinating people with these bad ideas. And it takes time to be persuaded out of them if you've been indoctrinated into them. No one is naturally born into being a Marxist, of course. But there are religious ideas that are similar. There are political ideologies that drive certain educational theories and so the work is kind of infinite. The work of freeing, liberating people from these tyrannical notions that take over their mind about how we people are evil and insofar as we're not evil, we're impotent to do anything to improve the world. When we do improve the world, if we improve the world, a lot of people think we don't improve the world. We're just here immiserating other species on the planet and hurting the planet insofar as we can actually hurt the planet. 
the work of trying to eradicate these bad ideas seems to be unending and probably possibly will be unending. That's me being a little bit pessimistic. But because the error becomes deeply entrenched so early on in the lives of people and because governments have a vested interest in ensuring that these kind of ideas, that the, that the government needs to be uh, front and centre and, and, and important in people's lives, there's a lot of forces arrayed against anyone who thinks that the individual, the individual person, the individual knowledge creator can make a true difference in the world and that people, generally speaking, can make a positive difference in the world and in fact are the only thing, the only entity actually doing the work of trying to improve the world, literally the planet, literally um, the lives of other people. It is just other people doing that. And, and the exception is the people that are causing harm to one another. They're, they're the exception to the rule. Far more harm is done by the environment to people. That, that, that's worse. If, if nature was a person, they would be the worst serial killer. They would be the worst torturer, the worst sadist that has ever lived because nature is constantly, as I've said before, um, flooding or starving or blasting or burning etc 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 the innocent people that exists on this planet uh, the universe is uh, hostile it's not out to get us but at the same time it's not providing a very nice environment for us to live in instead we have to eke out an existence on uh, in a hostile universe okay back to the book after that cheery note um, David writes quote a thousand years is a long time for a static society to survive. We think of the great centralised empires of antiquity, which lasted even longer. But that is a selection effect. We have no record of most static societies, and they must have been much shorter lived. A natural guess is that most were destroyed by the first challenge that would have required the creation of a significantly new pattern of behaviour. The isolated location of Easter Island and the relatively hospitable nature of its environment might have given its static society a longer lifespan than it would have if it had been exposed to more tests by nature and by other societies. But even those factors are still human, not biogeographical. If the islanders had known how to make long-range ocean voyages, the island would not have been isolated in the relevant sense. Likewise, how hospitable Easter Island is depends on what the inhabitants know. If its settlers had known as little about survival techniques as I do, then they would not have survived their first week on the island. And on the other hand, today, thousands of people live on Easter Island without starving and without a forest, though now they are planting one because they want to and know how. Pause there, just my reflection. David kind of hints at this elsewhere, and he mentions you know, Oxford in the UK as well. But you can say it about anywhere on the face of the planet. Everywhere is inhospitable. Almost everywhere is entirely unsuited to human beings. We are this special kind of species that, well, we don't have much, we, we have some inborn knowledge, but our inborn survival capacity is pretty limited. I mean, we're born as helpless babies, unlike, you know, the, the giraffe or the horse, which is walking within a few hours and able to look after itself more or less within a few hours. We are completely helpless for the first few years of our lives. 
And then we have to create knowledge in order to survive. And there's nowhere on Earth that is really a wonderful nursery for human beings in its natural state. Only our houses and our towns and our cities are able to really do the job of properly nurturing young children and bringing human beings to the point of being able to survive themselves within those cities and towns and houses. But plonk the average person like me anywhere in the natural environment here on Earth and I'd be dead within weeks, maybe days, um, even if it's a place which is you know, where, where we supposedly evolved. Sub-Saharan Africa is not going to be somewhere where I'm going to survive. The Great Rift Valley is not going to be somewhere where I'm going to be able to find food and clean drinking water. So, so this concept of hospitable, of how hospitable a, a, a place is, like Easter Island, depends, as David says, precisely on what the inhabitants know. So how hospitable the environment I find myself in here in New South Wales at the moment also is not merely about my personal knowledge to a large extent. It's about the knowledge that other people have. Thank goodness, <laughs> because it's only by virtue of the fact that someone else has been able to build this house that I don't have knowledge of how to build this house. I don't have knowledge of how to um, generate electricity. I, I have some understanding of the physics of electricity generation, but if you put me at a power station where it's actually going on, I wouldn't have a clue. I wouldn't have a clue about uh, how much coal needs to go into the burner, uh, at what rate, uh, <laughs> these sort of technical details. But thankfully, someone does. And overall, the, the, the civilization is hospitable because the knowledge instantiated, not only in people's minds, but in the physical artifacts, the technology is there to make this place hospitable. It's not the natural environment that makes it hospitable, because the natural environment is not hospitable. <laughs> it's very unfriendly. Like, of course, now and again, there are times where me, personally, I, I, I love going for a walk in nature, into inhospitable nature, to get away from civilization to some extent, um, because I just like to have some extra fresh air or to feel a different temperature on my skin or to uh, see the wild animals that are out there or the nice green trees or perhaps the nice beach and so on and so forth. But that's the exception to the rule. I often can't wait to get back home again to where it is warm and dry and there's food aplenty. <laughs> so the hospitability is very much, overall, depends upon the knowledge that exists in those places. Not merely my personal knowledge, although that's important. I have to know how to switch the lights on and off, for example, and get the food from the fridge. That's not much that's expected of me. But the knowledge of fridges is contained within fridges. And thankfully, people who construct fridges and can repair fridges and so on and so forth repeat for every other bit of technology that keeps my house, my town, my city, my country hospitable. Okay. Let's keep going. We'll just read for a little bit more today. It's going to be a short episode, and I can promise you part four again very soon. David writes, quote, The Easter Island civilization collapsed because no human situation is free of new problems, and static societies are inherently unstable in the face of new problems. Civilizations rose and collapsed on other South Pacific islands too, including Pitcairn Island. That was part of the broad sweep of history in the region. And in the big picture, the cause was that they all had problems that they failed to solve. The Easter Islanders failed to navigate their way off the island, just as the Romans failed to solve the problem of how to change governments peacefully. 
If there was a forestry disaster in Easter Island, that was not what brought its inhabitants down. It was that they were chronically unable to solve the problem that this raised. If that problem had not dispatched their civilization, some other problem eventually would have. Sustaining their civilization in its static, statue-obsessed state was never an option. The only options were whether it would collapse suddenly and painfully, destroying most of what little knowledge they had, or change slowly and for the better. Perhaps they would have chosen the latter if only they had known how. Pause there, my reflection just on that. Now, importantly, and, and people might um, um, easily read past that, not noticing the word slowly, David has said there that the only option is Easter Island could have uh, very quickly, suddenly, painfully destroying the knowledge. That's the way in which the society could have collapsed. The only alternative was to change slowly and for the better. Now, the slowly is important. I guess another way of saying that is incrementally. Okay, uh, Incrementally, in other words, making a small change, a small improvement at a time. And I, I like to say that this is this is sort of a, a it's a digital way of viewing civilizations you want to have incremental improvement uh, it continues in a sense you want the increments to just keep accruing all the time you want the you want it to be a a constant kind of state of improvement that's what you want but you won't get that what of course you'll get is you'll have an incremental change that sometimes will be for the worse but luckily it was only incremental if you're doing the right thing in a modern Western democratic society, you try out a policy, which is a bit of a change from the previous policy, and it may well go wrong. But because it's an incremental change on what was there before, you can correct it. You can undo it, go back to the previous state, and then try something different again, which hopefully this time will be an incremental improvement. You always want the increment uh, to be central there, this, this slow kind of improvement, so that when things inevitably go wrong, problems are inevitable, you can then turn around on a dime, hopefully, and go back to the way things were before and start again, essentially, without too much damage. This is why evolution within the political sphere, evolution within social change, is so much more important than revolution. And we hear now, you know, speaking in 2021, I often don't invoke contemporary matters in politics, but there's something going on called the Great Reset. The Great Reset is where rich and powerful people are deciding that we need to you know, give up private property, that we have to completely revolutionise the way in which trade is conducted. We have to revolutionise the way in which we think about political institutions. They want the Great Reset. They want revolution. And there has always been people calling for revolution. No matter how good things are and how good things have become recently and how much the pace of improvement has increased recently, there are people, the naysayers are still out there saying how terrible things are and therefore we need to have a revolution. We need to undermine the very thing that has given us such great wealth and health and success and improving everything from our physical environment by removing the pollution, um, removing illnesses that were previously killing us at a far greater rate, as well as improving the individual lives of people around the world through increased freedom, wealth, trade, etc., and so forth. But these changes 
must remain incremental. And if we start to follow the advice of people who want revolution, then we end up undoing institutions that contain, as we've talked about throughout this series, inexplicit knowledge about how to keep a society stable under great change. It is only the Western civilizations following Enlightenment traditions that have been able to maintain this dynamism, this ability to just slowly improve the situation for everyone within that society over time. And we don't know all the ways in which it works. We know some of the ways. We can point to different institutions and say, the reason why we've been able to remain stable over time is because of hmm, you know, democratic, free and fair elections, a, a court system and a legal system, which is... Um, uh, uh, blind to whoever the person is that, that, that is accused of a crime. Um, capitalism and the ability to freely trade with people one to another. Uh, these things, okay, are, are part of the story. But the entire story is not well known and well understood. We struggle to understand simple systems like atoms and matter. Uh, very, very clever people become particle physicists and trying to understand the complexity of matter. But matter... The structure of matter is simple compared to a civilization and how societies actually maintain their stability over time. I would say we know more about the standard model of, of, of particle physics than we know about the conditions required in order to maintain a stable civilization over time. Civilizations are the most complex thing that we know about. The most complex thing that we know about. The, the, the most complicated structures that human beings have ever come up with are these social civilizations. More complicated than a Boeing 747 or an Elon Musk rocket or a, a great ocean liner. You could compare civilizations to these things, but then think orders of magnitude more complicated, more complex. The moving parts are phenomenally complicated and we don't know what they all are. Okay, so that's where I should end it today. Coming up is one of my favourite anecdotes that David tells in the entire book. Um, well, two, two, two great uh, anecdotes in the book. One about how uh, when he was at school, there there was someone, uh, one of these people who was saying the heavens are falling, of course, you know, there's going to be great climate change and it's coming, it's coming, just you wait. Um, but of course, it was the great ice age that was coming when David was at school. And then, of course, uh, the European story about cathode ray tubes and how colour television would be coming to an end. I've told that story once before as well, but finally we get to it in the book. It's a short one for today, but until part four, bye-bye.